listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another Advocacy Update podcast. My name is Clark Rockfall, the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. And thank you to everyone listening on ACB Radio, as well as those who are listening uh, to the podcast of this podcast, the podcast of this podcast on your favorite podcast player. See, Claire, that is why I say podcast player, because otherwise it just doesn't flow very well. Uh, For folks who would like to learn more about ACB, please visit our website at acb.org. And as always, thank you to Sprint T-Mobile for underwriting our podcasts uh, now and through the end of 2020. So you're saying the podcast of the podcast. I feel like that's very meta. Like, does that mean something like the podcast of the podcast of the podcast? Very philosophical, very meta. I like it. It means it's early and we're doing this in one take. (laughs) That's what it means. So as you can tell, Claire Stanley is here, ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. However, Claire is not a host today. She is a guest and one of our two guests. How are you doing, Claire? I am doing okay. You know, everything is peachy keen. Thank you. Yeah. And Claire, what are we here to talk about today? So we today are here to talk about a project that the Department of Transportation, the U.S. Department of Transportation, I guess I should say, not to be mistaken for one of the state DOTs, but a project that the U.S. Department of Transportation is working on called the Accessibility Strategic Plan Framework. And I'm so proud that I got that out in one breath because it is quite the mouthful. So it's a project that DOT is working on to eventually come out with a report or a strategic plan all about accessibility in the transportation realm. And when I say all about, it really is because it spans all kinds of different forms of transportation from micromobility to um, autonomous vehicles to infrastructure itself on how it impacts roads and that kind of thing. So it's quite in depth and um, we're excited to talk about it. Yeah, and Claire is not our only guest, if we can even call Claire a guest, Uh, but our guest today on this podcast, we're also joined by Sarah Malayer. Sarah, longtime friend of ACB, and Sarah, you are the Public Policy and Research Advisor for the American Foundation for the Blind. Is that correct? That is correct. And how are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing pretty well. Sun is shining, and I like it when the sun shines. (laughs) There you go. Uh, So, this national online dialogue, it took place over, what, three, four weeks. Uh, More than a a thousand individuals participated. I know many ACB members submitted uh, individual feedback for this as well. Um, Sarah, any broad thoughts on this dialogue? Well, I thought it was, was, I was really glad that the Department of Transportation put it out. You know, sometimes I feel like they don't get um, a lot of good conversation on these dialogues, but um, they they really got a a variety of of ideas and engagement. Um, And uh, so there's some exciting ideas embedded within it, and I hope it it leads to something 
that will be beneficial to all of us. And is you have anything to add uh, to what Claire mentioned earlier about the the intent of the dialogue, the reason why they're gathering this information and how it will be used going forward? Yeah, the so the strategic plan that they're putting together, um, you know, I think a lot remains to be seen about what their intentions are, what their, um, you know, their ultimate execution. But I think it, it's it's really exciting to see that that the department as a whole is thinking about what what does it take to to have accessibility in mind over an extended period of time, um, and to be able to be held accountable to that. Um, you know, I, I think for us as advocates, it's a it's a really great opportunity for us to say, see, here's your strategic plan. How are you working towards that um, and incorporating that into all of your priorities and projects? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this is just the first step. Um, they're they're going to put out the, the strategic plan for public comment, but that'll give us more opportunities to put our initial feedback in and um, uh, help shape this to something that could could lead to some impacts five years down the road. Claire, what was the website like? Since this was a national online dialogue, um, was it accessible for everyone? Did you have any issues um, participating in the dialogue? Did you hear from any of our members if they had issues? You know, Clark, it was definitely different than I think a lot of us anticipated. Um, I actually got to work closely with um, our co-chair from the Transportation Task Force with from the Consortium of Citizens with Disabilities. Um, Sarah and I actually are both co-chairs with Carol Tyson from uh, DREDIS, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. So shout, uh, shout out to Carol, thank you very much. Um, and Carol and I thought initially that it would look more like just submitting typical comments to the um, the federal registry that you often submit comments to when departments put out questions. It was not like that at all. It was a completely different system where you submitted comments and the format was very different. And then when you did so, you could then go and um, vote yes or no. It almost kind of reminded me of Facebook. You could give people kudos. You could submit comments again, almost like a social media page. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't 100% accessible. Again, thank you, Carol, so much. Carol helped to submit the comments initially for ACB because there was a little bit of anxiety about the accessibility. So we'll see if, if government agencies continue to use platforms like this, because again, it was not like the Federal Register. It was very, very different. And you know, it's, it's fun to see that they're using different things, but at the same time, we always wanna make sure that accessibility is something we always um, see from the, the federal government. So it was definitely a different experience, that is for sure. I went back and played with it when I was submitting comments and voting yes or no on people via my smartphone, because like a lot of us know that tends to be a little bit more accessible for those of us, unfortunately, that's just the reality. So I did a lot of my voting from my smartphone instead. Sarah, what did you think about the, the kind of social media-fication of the federal government's comment system. Yeah, um, so it's, I, it reminded me a little bit of Reddit, um, if y'all are familiar with that, the, mm -hmm. the opportunity to have the forum, the dialogue back and forth. You know, at first I, I, I also thought it was gonna be a bit more formal comments, but 
after digging in and, and understanding that this framework that they're building out is kind of the prerequisite to their strategic plan um, and that that will have the formal comment period, um, you know, it, it is kind of nice to have that, that engagement between um, people because if someone submits a comment, you know, you can certainly reply to it or mention it in your own comments, but um, you can't directly engage with that idea. Um, so I think it's it's a really great way to spark some more informal um, dialogue, but I certainly think they've still got some work to do to, to get it where it's fully usable and accessible. And, um, you know, probably only what, somewhere between 20 and 50 people engaged on this. Um, and I think it might be a lot different if you had, say, thousands of comments coming in. That's interesting. I almost felt, I almost felt like, um, you know, you see kids do with um, with um, Instagram and things like that. Like, did people like my comment? Yes. Oh, I didn't get enough likes. It's kind of comical. You're like, why didn't people like mine? I want more votes. I know it's definitely going down. And like, did I get upvotes? Did I get the kudos? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Who is this person who gave me a kudo? <laughs> Claire, was there any efforts to uh, artificially boost? the the likes and thumbs up and kudos on on the the posts that we like that you know not saying that ACB would do that but some other I, pro I promise everything was above board <laughs> okay well that's disappointing well, we did encourage the the task force to that is true give us some likes yeah that's good. but we didn't tell them which ones to like they still have that freedom and part of this dialogue, there were five goals, correct? Um, so let, I think we should just run down the, the goals and um, if you two could offer any insights or comments that were included related to those goals, I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about that. Um, so the first goal was about removing unnecessary barriers. So for sure. Claire, uh, so that what, one is, of, what does that mean? Oh, that is a great, great question. So um, I wish I had the actual language in front of me that um, they have. I don't know if you have the, the direct language, Sarah. I apologize. I just have our own comments that ACB submitted. But direct barriers, of course, jumped out at me um, because no pun, no pun intended, but unnecessary barriers is kind of the living joke for those of us who are blind, right? Bumping right into a barrier. Um, so um, we came up, when I say we, I did, but of course that I took into mind everything that ACV is continually talking about to come up with different topics or issues that are presented to the blind and visually impaired community. And so um, I can talk about some of the things that we drafted comments on, but things like um, infrastructure and the way that we use intersections. So I talked about our imperative from 2020 on including um, accessible pedestrian signals when we have LPI technology at an in, uh, intersection. Um, I talked about the impact of COVID on things like um, our friend at ACB, Pat Sheehan, has dubbed them streeteries, where now because of COVID, um, sidewalks are becoming cluttered with tables and things like that. So we're now having different issues where um, it's unsafe or difficult for those of us who are blind or visually impaired to get around. 
Um, so those were a couple of the different things we talked about. I can go on and read more, um, but definitely a lot of different um, different barriers that we see. I also talked about, I'm looking through my notes, micromobility. Again, this was another thing we talked about in our imperative at the legislative seminar this year about um, things like e-scooters and bicycles littering the sidewalks now and not having policies in place to really prevent that. So quite a few different things that again are unnecessary barriers for those of us who are blind or visually impaired. And Sarah, um, do you have any feedback on um, unnecessary barriers. And I guess when I think of barriers, I think of like permanent, semi-permanent structures, right? Um, so whether that's a, a tree well in a tree right in the middle of the sidewalk or a telephone pole instead of to the side of the sidewalk, just like right in the middle that it has to be navigated around. And um, although streeteries might be unnecessary, I would say a taco truck is very necessary. This is true. That is very true. <laughs> I just want to draw that distinction. Well, I, I think that the taco truck is, is necessary, but if they put their tables in the middle of the sidewalk, that would be unnecessary. Thank you. Yes. Nicely done. Yeah. And that doesn't mean the taco truck should be perpendicular to the sidewalk. You know, you or can... parked on the sidewalk. Exactly. Exactly. Um, anything else from AFB's perspective on um, unnecessary barriers, Sarah? Yeah, so this was kind of a catch-all category, I thought, um, because I agree, they, yeah. they talked about some of those physical barriers, but then they also talked about the importance of the Office of Civil Rights, which is really important. And um, I don't know if y'all have gone and looked at it lately, but if you want to file a FTA OCR com complaint, you have to print it out, fill it out by hand, and mail it in. And that's uh, not particularly accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got some work to do. Um, so we, we brought up that. We um, mentioned the, the data specifications, which is something that, that the Department of Transportation talked about. And that's, that's where they're collecting data, putting, putting it all together, coding it, and, and then you can use it in mapping and other sort of planning tools. Um, so I'd really like to see more accessibility data in those data specifications, as well as making sure that they are consistent across um, jurisdictions and, um, you know, different transit agencies and uh, mapping companies. Um, but then, of course, those uh, the the public right of way accessibility and the public right of way accessibility guidelines. That's really important. And then pick up and drop off, um, making sure that your ability to get to and from the sidewalk and from different vehicles um, is safe and clear and um, understandable. And Claire, you started to touch on the second goal in your response. The second goal is enhancing opportunities for people with disabilities to walk, roll, cycle, and use micro mobility. Yes, definitely. Um, so again, like you said, Clark, we touched upon that in the first goal, because I think there's definitely some overlap there, but I talked about it in some comments again in the next goal and goal two, um, because of all the different issues that come up with micromobility. And again, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term micromobility, we're talking about e-scooters, bicycles, all those different programs now you're seeing where companies rent out these different uh, mobility devices and people can uh, pay to ride them from point A to point B, and then at point B, they can just leave them there. 
and policies by these companies are that you're supposed to leave them in safe locations, out of the way, things like that. However, unfortunately, and I'm sure most of you are nodding your head, people tend to leave them in really um, unsafe areas, right by curb cuts, just smack in the middle of the sidewalk. And for those of us who are blind or visually impaired, they become um, really unsafe, um, you know, things for us to trip over. Um, hopefully your white cane will come into contact with it or your guide dog will guide you around it. But you know, that's, there's always issues that arise. Um, so we talked about um, how kind of twofold we talked about. And again, it was an impaired move we talked about at legislative seminar as well. But some of our asks are that one, companies penalize appropriately people who don't um, abide by the rules so that companies really take the steps they need, but also that cities or towns or whatever the municipality is, that they work with these companies to make sure that policies are put in place for when people do. Um, not comply with these rules that the cities work with these companies to say we need a process in place that boom that piece of micro mobility is moved out of the way and that these cities do penalize their users because unfortunately uh, we're not seeing that the penalties are really having the the effect that we would like to have quick enough so making sure that the cities reach out to these companies and say you know you need to get on top of this asap I thought that was an interesting part of this uh, um, uh, framework because they were talking a lot about, uh, the Department of Transportation was talking a lot about getting more people onto micromobility. And from a accessibility standpoint, it's, um, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear what y'all think, but it's it seems to me it's almost more about like managing them than getting more people on them. This is an interesting one. I've, I've heard and read some information, um, especially in European cities, about e-scooters that you can connect to a wheelchair so mm -hmm. that somebody in a wheelchair can take advantage of the, the motor of the micromobility to move along more quickly. Um, but I'm also curious if there was any mention of COVID and the changes and policies um, as well as like traffic patterns and rights of way that cities around the United States have been doing. Um, so for example, here in the DC area, there've been additional streets that have become bike only streets. You know, Oakland, Portland, Seattle, um, Chicago, Atlanta, they've experimented with this as well. It, at first it started out as an opportunity for urban dwellers to get out on their bike and do socially distant exercise, whether biking or running. Um, but I'm curious if there'll be a, a broader focus now to try to encourage more micro wheeled transportation, um, micro mobility or bikes, what have you, have them have a, a safe dedicated lane or road to use to encourage them to leave the sidewalk, but also lower the risk of them getting plowed by a car. Right now, that's largely the bike lanes, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes, but the bike lanes where cars park and open their doors and buses yes. stop. 
I know it's been a topic. I haven't heard of anything um, in the COVID space where people have talked about it, but that very issue of bike lanes, um, for instance, we all live in the DC area, has been a topic I've heard um, in these conversations because those of us who don't want to um, be negatively impacted by micromobility are often, I don't want to say yelling, but talking very loudly that yes, you need to have bike lanes and that kind of thing. So that when you have an e-scooter whipping down the sidewalk, it's not going to impact, you know, those of us on the sidewalk negatively. But then the, the pushback, which is totally valid is, you know, is it safe to have a bike lane or like you just said, Clark, you know, cars are parking along the streets and that kind of thing. So how do you accommodate both parties? So it's definitely not an easy answer. You definitely can see the impact um, from both sides. And, and then for folks outside of major urban areas, there, there might not be a, a bike lane or a shoulder at all to mm -hmm. safely roll cycle or use micro mobility and chances are a lot of those places don't have appropriate pedestrian infrastructure either mm -hmm. yeah uh, that was actually a, that was a pretty common comment that people made was you know the need for better shoulders on roads the need for sidewalks simply to exist and um, also thinking about the interactions with bicycles um, and, and making the pedestrian environment more consistent. Yes. And I think that ties into the, the next goal as well. We've certainly heard of folks having to navigate, uh, especially dedicated bike lanes to get to, say for example, a bus island um, at, on a busy street or a busy intersection, right? Or if you're navigating to a, a taxi or a shared ride service, um, how can you do so safely without encountering micromobility, but also potentially parked cars, turning cars, or those uh, unnecessary barriers on uh, sidewalks and pedestrian right-of-ways. Um, so the, the fourth goal is... One other thing, third goal. Uh, one other thing from goal two I'd love to bring up um, real quick, Clark, and I feel like we just touched on a, a tiny little bit, but I want to bring up again sure. is the idea of micromobility that's accessible for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some different devices out there that are accessible, for instance, with handbrakes in hand. Um, things like that for people with um, physical disabilities. Well, for us, we know the main request is going to be tandem bicycles. Um, and there's always talk about making things like e-scooters accessible for the blind, which I'm very curious and excited to hear how that would be done. But, you know, technology is always advancing. But anyway, all that to say, um, a lot of the companies do have tandem bikes now. But the major complaint, which is totally valid, is that they are very scarce. And so you're not going to find one at every corner. And so if you want to use one, you really have to do your homework to go and find one. And so, you know, does that even make it worth it? Because you can't just pick it up anywhere. You really have to do your research. So um, we wrote a comment on encouraging them to put them in more places and to get the, the education out there and that kind of thing. So we'd love to hear from our members. Is that something you're excited about? I know I would love that. Um, but again, money, resources, things like that might be the pushback, but um, definitely an interesting topic to discuss in the micromobility fields. And in that micromobility space, are there any e-bike or e-scooter 
services that are recommending or designing their services for two passengers? I know some of the ones that um, ACB has had a, the opportunity to talk with on a regular basis, which are some of the major ones like um, Jump and Uber and things like that have been talking about developing more tandem bikes and things like that. So it's definitely in the works by the big major micro mobility companies. So again, it's definitely being discussed. My fear, and this is only my personal fear though, is that they're just going to be produced in such low numbers that again, are you really going to do the research to go and find the one in all of Washington, D.C., for instance? So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see see what happens. I have seen some uh, pictures from, I think it was Minneapolis, mm -hmm. where they're docked bikes um, that the, I guess, the city contracts with someone to, to put the bikes in. Sometimes they have some really cool adaptive bikes, either the the side-by-side bikes the the mm. um tandems different ones with the you know the hand um pedals and and brakes and um i don't know again your questions about is there only one that's a really valid question um yeah. but it is cool to see them out there and to see them parked in the same docks that uh regular For bikes sure. are parked in that's a really good point sarah thank you and if no one has ever tried a hand cycle, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a different experience, um, but certainly a, a needed option for um, folks with leg impairments. Uh, and geez, also there are adult tricycles basically and upright mm -hmm. trikes as well as recumbent trikes. If folks have balance, is balance issues or they don't want to bend down uh, you know, low enough to get in a recumbent low to the ground. So there's a lot of exciting stuff out there, just whether it would be um, economical and available uh, for someone to use on the regular basis, I think is more the question. Yeah. And then uh, not the first time I've said it, probably not the last time I'll say it, but Sarah was right. We are on to goal number three. <laughs> Clark is jumping ahead there. Yeah. Um, and that's including improving access for people with disabilities to passenger and commercial vehicles. So who I feel like, like this one gets a lot of conversation. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't mind going. Um, so AFB commented on this, you know, the big perpetual, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, AV accessibility um, and, you know, got it get that design in from the very beginning. Um, and then I know also we, we echoed some of the comments that that I know that ACB was putting out and um, that Dredef had put out about uh, uh, licensure and um, insurance discrimination, um, because those are things that I, I guess the Department of Transportation feels like they can do something about um, in the short term. Um, but then another thing that we really wanted to highlight was, uh, you know, accessible transit websites, timetables, apps, making sure that, you know, the, there's multiple ways to interact with a, or to know when the bus is coming. Um, so it's not just a, a picture of a timetable um, that, that isn't, isn't accessible, whether it's online or in person. Um, and, and then the, the, the third thing was you know, TNC accessibility is the Uber, the Lyft, 
um, the other innovative on-demand service accessible um, because there's there's a lot of need for for um, uh, on-demand services, but they there's you know they've, they've got a long way to go, um, and so that, that's kind of what our comments were on that. Yeah, uh, ACB um, submitted very similar comments to what. Um, Sarah was talking about initially, we really focused in on autonomous vehicles. And I think that's something I at least like to assume that ACB members are very passionate about. We get calls all the time in conversations. And as most of you know, um, legislation surrounding autonomous vehicles was again one of our imperatives for 2020 from our leadership conference. So a lot of the comments that ACB submitted surrounded many of the different details we talked about in our um, discussions from again 2020. So like Sarah said, the first thing we submitted a very similar comment about um, policies on things like vision tests for licenses when AVs do come to surface. Why would you have to pass a vision test to get a license when AVs do fully come to the point that you can drive them truly um, autonomously, that's not necessary. So I'm trying to preempt some state policies that might arise. Um, we talked a lot about the design of autonomous vehicles. We often use the term HMI or human machine interface. So making sure that autonomous vehicles will be designed with um, accessibility in mind. So when you're interacting with the car, will it um, have text to speech? Will it have large print? Will it have haptics for people who are deafblind? So just really digging our teeth into how you could make these autonomous vehicles truly accessible, because this is definitely doable. But as we all know, that if you try to retro some, retrofit something and make it accessible after the fact, it's just not the same as doing it from the upfront. So that was something we really talked about as well. Um, and then a second thing that built off of that, we submitted a comment about having autonomous vehicle, vehicle um, services. And a lot of people um, theorize that the first version of autonomous vehicles will be like um, TNCs, like Uber or Lyft. So we submitted a comment on making those available in rural areas. And I know a lot of you who live in those more rural or small town areas are probably nodding your head because uh, public transportation is very limited. And we get calls from people all the time saying, you know, I need transportation resources. What do I do? I live in a small town. So we hope that when we have things that are like Uber or Lyft with their autonomous vehicles, that we'll see them more readily in these smaller towns. And you guys will have more options to transportation. That's a really important thing. Claire, you mentioned the human machine interface within the vehicle. And Sarah mentioned access to um, accessible information, um, I guess, prior to using public transportation. Um, marrying those two, were there conversations about uh, basically that first and last mile for ride shares and autonomous vehicles, you know, having an, an accessible pedestrian right of way so that you can make it first be able to identify and then safely navigate to your ride. You know, you're not, uh, okay, you've got this awesome uh, autonomous vehicle pick up and drop off space, but do I need to play Frogger uh, navigating <laughs> six lanes of traffic trying to get there safely, um, as well as 
exiting or egressing the vehicle? Um, you know, how do you know where you're dropped off and being able to navigate to your destination after being dropped off? You know, Clark, that's a really good point. And I'm trying to recall if I saw any comments that people submitted on that topic, but that is something that ACB continually brings up at conversations on these topics that, yeah, in order to use an autonomous vehicle, you have to get in the car, you have to find it and get in. And then when you get to the location, you have to get out safely. And so in conversations, we're constantly talking about those issues of um, what kind of different creative um, ideas can you come up where maybe your smartphone um, goes beep 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 the closer you get to the car mm -hmm. or making sure that when the car gets to the destination it will pull up to a curb not just hover in the middle of the street so when you get out of the car you're exposed to traffic so those are different ideas with difficult solutions of course because what you know how do you maneuver through busy new york city versus small town Alabama, you know, so trying to come up. <laughs> I tease Alabama is where Sarah's originally from. Um, but how do you <laughs> um, how do you deal with those those different things? So those are different variables we're always talking about. Yeah, I, I didn't see that necessarily come up in the, this conversation, but I think that was that's definitely part of the conversations with the you know access to walk roll cycle and removing unnecessary barriers. Exactly. Exactly. It's certainly included in the broader, um, if not specific to that one goal. All right. Now we're finally caught up to where I thought we were and talking about goal number four. And this really ties into what you're both talking about, um, especially in rural and suburban areas, um, having access to ride shares or autonomous vehicles, uh, but su supporting the development and diversification of public transit systems. Um, so Sarah, what, what do you think that means? It certainly could mean a lot. Um, and actually I borrowed something, a theme that I heard pretty consistently at your convention this year, which is make the paratransit rules the floor and not the ceiling. Um, so we talked about, so I, we talked a little bit about the paratransit rules and um, needing to make them work better for people um, that it doesn't have to be just what what the minimum is, uh, mm -hmm. but moving towards that that opportunity for on demand, um, the opportunity for uh, policies that that get people where they need to be um, consistently that aren't aren't restricting their their mobility. Um, and expanding those services across the country. So that may be, you know, paratransit in one city, but, um, you know, there's this program called 5310, which funds other um, transportation programs and uh, additional accessibility services for people with disabilities and for older adults. Um, and, and those exist across the country, including in, era, in rural areas. Um, so making that a bit greater focus of, of the department. Um, but then, one, you know, this has been a, quite the summer of, of dealing with COVID, but also a lot of racial tensions. Um, so we, we wanted to, to make sure that, that accessibility um, also includes uh, the intersections of, of race um, and uh, ethnicity. And so, so we encourage the department to also think about um, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and including tribal lands in there. Uh, um, 
in, in the policies. Um, and then we also really hear through in a pitch for responding to the coronavirus um, because it's, it's upending the way we do transit in a lot of ways, um, or at least changing them. And so what are the new frameworks that we're creating? What are the new solutions that we're pursuing? And do they meet the same levels of accessibility? Or are we going to take a step back, you know, right as we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the ADA? Well, what are, what are your thoughts on the development and diversification of public transit systems? Well, even just taking taking a step back to the goal itself, kind of on the same topic, it seems like great minds think alike because um, ACB submitted very similar comments about kind of the expansion of paratransit and not even expanding it per se, but um, evolving it and making it look different 30 years after the ADA was passed because like all things, things evolve over time. And so what might've worked back in 1990 when the ADA was signed might not be the perfect fit now. And that was a big discussion that we had at our convention at the transportation forum this summer. Um, Ron Brooks, one of our transportation gurus did a great discussion on kind of what we as blind and visually impaired people might want paratransit to look like today. Um, so we, uh, or I should say, I, with the wisdom of people like Ron Brooks and the input from all of our members and participants, wrote a comment on kind of what we might want paratransit to look like now, then maybe it shouldn't stay stagnant and be what it was 30 years ago. Um, so we talked about kind of what it might look like. I know the on-demand system is something a lot of our members want. So we talked about how maybe a, an on-demand day of service might be more beneficial, of course, considering all the implications that might arise from that. Um, but that is something a lot of our members talked about. So we kind of talked about those different changes that should be implemented. And Claire, that's not, that's not a new and revolutionary idea, right? That's already being done in some places and piloted in others, correct? It is. Um, not, not as many as some of us might want to, but it's definitely popped up in a few places. We've seen it in the Boston, Massachusetts area, in the Salt Lake City area, um, a few other, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and a few other places. So it's definitely being um, tested and piloted in a lot of places. Um, and so to be determined how um, if it can maintain itself and that kind of thing. But yes, it's, it's definitely not a new idea. People are just hoping to see it, it practiced in more locations. And I think what's, one of the things that's great about this, this dialogue is that it brings out the intersections of all of um, the issues. And I think um, that we'd have more of these on-demand um, pilots and partnerships if um, the companies that we were working with had a better commitment to accessibility for, for all people. I know that the lack of wheelchair accessibility is one of the things that's really mm -hmm. holding back these, these on-demand um, uh, partnerships. Um, so it'd be great to see some progress on that. And Sarah, you mentioned previously the, the Civil Rights Act and equity in service and distribution of service. Um, so for example, there are certain parts of, again, Washington, D.C., just because that's where I'm familiar with, Mm -hmm. uh, where the the metro train system does not go. Um, yeah. So your option in those spaces might only be bus lines. Um, how great would it be if micromobility could help individuals in those um, parts of the city that have less resources than other, 
others or uh, fewer transportation uh, access options um, to use and require the disbursement of micromobility services. So there, there are more options um, that can help people you know, either commute to and from work, to and from school, and just to increase the, the amount of available options um, throughout all parts of a, a city or urban landscape, um, as well as in the, the suburban and rural spaces as well. That was yeah. one, of the, one of the comments that ACB also submitted had to do with the more small town and rural areas as it pertains to paratransit, because the way the Americans with Disabilities Act is written, uh, you only have to have paratransit where you have public transportation. Uh, paratransit is kind of a, an alternative, so to speak, for public transit. And so if you live in a smaller area that doesn't have a bus system or subway system or whatever it is, you don't have to have paratransit. So if you are blind or visually impaired or have a disability, if you really want access to paratransit slash public transit, your options are limited as far as living in small towns and you should have the right to live in a small town if you want to. Um, so that was another topic that we wrote a comment on and came up during our convention this summer was how do we allow people to live in whatever town they want to? Because I know for me growing up in the suburbs with not a lot of public transit, I always said, I'm getting out of here. I want to move to a city where I have options. Um, but you shouldn't have to make that sacrifice if you don't want to. So how do we find solutions around that? It is interesting the way the law's written. It, it gives you the right to use the services that, that exist, but it doesn't give you a right to have transportation. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and on the, the topic of development and diversification of public transit systems, it's again, back to COVID, it's going to be interesting to see how public transportation systems are utilized going forward, even in the cities or urban centers where they are available. Um, plenty of places have, have made modifications to their services, either reduced service or limited the number of passengers that they will take on. Um, you know, Claire, Again, in the DC area, when you take the, the trains or the buses, um, how do they look now? And even how does paratransit look now compared to what it did six months ago? Yeah, I mean, it's night and day different. When I take the metro, it's completely empty. For the longest time, the, the number of trains that came per hour were extremely reduced. Thankfully, knock on wood, they are coming more often now, but it took a long time to get there. And they say it won't get back to its, you know, original normalcy, so to speak, for potentially another six plus months. So um, it looks a lot of looks very different. When I take paratransit, I, I laugh that the upside is that they won't transport two people or more than one person at a time to prevent the spread of potentially COVID. So um, you do get places a lot quicker, um, <laughs> but it, it, it looks different because of that. So, you know, transportation definitely looks different than it once did. And going forward, how, and Sarah, any thoughts on how that might impact uh, a city or mun municipality's willingness to diversify their public transit offerings? I'm really concerned that we're going to see a contraction in public transportation offerings mm. just across the board. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's budget cuts or we're not seeing the, the usage mm. um, 
and maybe that will create some opportunities for, you know, better on-demand, um, you know, better individual but public transportation services. But I'm not terribly hopeful because I feel like a lot of accessibility considerations get left out when we start those new projects. Exactly. Yeah. And I I certainly share your optimism about the the opportunity for more on-demand services, uh, whether that is micro and shared mobility or ride shares, autonomous vehicles, um, like Claire with her chauffeured paratransit rides now, you know, she'll have the, the whole vehicle to herself and be able to get to places in a more timely manner. Um, but there's also uh, very real stories coming out of cities like New York, where due to a drastic reduction in ridership, the public transit system is drastically underfunded. Um, and that's going to put, um, that's going to lead to massive budget shortfalls and some very tough decisions about what services to offer and how widespread those services will be in the future. And as Claire pointed out, the availability of para or parallel transit services is tied to the regulations and the operation of fixed route public transit. Um, so that that is an unanswered question, but one that looms over us. And then just before we move on, Sarah, I'd like to highlight the point that you made um, and that you heard. And thank you for shouting out the transportation forum from the ACB virtual conference and convention. Um, but when we talk awesome. about, what's that? I, I would just like to say kudos for that, that transportation forum. I thought it was really well done. Hopefully the first, not, and not the only. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. It was very well received, so we'll give the people what they want. Um, and always thank you to Ron, Sheila, Becky, and everyone else that helped pull that together. Um, but when we talk about paratransit as regulatory compliance and compliance as the floor, um, that's also the razor's edge of um, you know, legal action as well, right? Because if, if you fall out of compliance, um, that's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. So we really wanna work with our partners, whether in government or uh, a private sector to move well beyond compliance to usability um, and develop systems that would best serve their consumers and clients. Absolutely. Clark, one other thing, totally switching gears for a second, but one last thing before we move on to goal five. Um, under goal, goal four, one uh, group that put out comments, or one person, I should say, that I'd be remiss not to bring up, um, came from our friends at IRA and other similar services. Our friend Paul Schrader, who many of you know, um, talked about the implementation of systems like IRA or Be My Eyes in public transit um, systems. So, for instance, if you're going through the subway system or metro or whatever equivalency you have in your states, um, having access to services like IRA or Be My Eyes to help kind of, uh, you know, supplement your mobility um, to get around those major um, transportation hubs, um, which I personally think is a fun and great idea. You know, you get into these systems sometimes and they can be a little overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a comment that was submitted under goal four and I voted yes 
um, the fun voting <laughs> ability. Um, and so just wanted to, to raise attention to that because I know we've had some similar discussions at ACB. Um, so that was submitted as a comment as well. Absolutely. And for everyone listening to the, this podcast, uh, please feel free to tune in to ACB Radio this Thursday evening, um, the day this podcast airs for the August board meeting. That's August 27th. I believe it starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and you can listen on mainstream on ACB Radio. We'll be going over the resolutions submitted to the board from this year's virtual conference and convention. And the topic that Claire just raised um, is very similar to a resolution that's made its way out of the resolutions committee, but also with consultation from the environmental access and transportation committees, um, encouraging the implementation, use and development of those high-tech accessibility um, and wayfinding solutions to provide accessible access to information and uh, for government services as well as um, transportation services. But while we talk about the high-tech solutions, we also want to uh, stay cognizant that not everyone has access to or is comfortable using a smartphone. So we really want to encourage that there are you know, your high-end high-tech solutions uh, as well as your you know, non-tech savvy solutions as well. So. <laughs> large print, um, high contrast, braille, and of, of course, friendly uh, transportation workers that can assist people if needed as well. I think that actually dovetails well with going into goal five because there were a couple of issues that at least ACB talked about both implementing technology and things like Amtrak as well as not getting rid of things like station agents because we still need that human interaction. So. But yeah, good plug for moving into advanced access to inner city transportation systems. <laughs> and this really does touch on um, many of the goals already mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to talk about transportation and improving, especially public and paratransportation without talking about inner cities and urban centers. Um, so Claire, you just touched on a few items. Let's expand on those. And then Sarah, if there are any other gaps to fill in, please feel free. Sure. So again, talking about things like Amtrak was one of the topics they had listed. So ACB submitted some comments on uh, Amtrak as one example, because it is a form of transportation that a lot of people with disabilities do not want to go away. Um, it really opens the door for another form of transportation. Um, but specifically, the two comments I just previously made, we talked about the need for enhanced technology on Amtrak, so things like actual understandable announcements when they get to your stop. So the advent of greater technology that's um, computerized that you know uh, announces loudly and understandably what the stops are, but then not just relying completely on technology, but also still having staff agents at Amtrak stations. I know a lot of stations don't have that all, at all anymore, and I don't know about you, but depending on where I'm getting on, uh, if there's no person at all that's intimidating, are you getting on at the right place? Are you not? Um, is it safe even to walk over the tracks to get to the next location? So um, both in uh, uh, promoting advanced technology for new trains, because they really are getting pretty cool and pretty 
pretty fancy these days, but not eliminating altogether the person or, or the gate agent or whatever you call them um, at different train systems. Sarah, yeah. anything you'd like to add? You know, we didn't put any comments on this one, but I, I did notice a couple of themes was that, you know, one of, uh, it's great to have inner city transportation, but if it's not connected to, to other local services, then it's not particularly useful to people. Um, and that's, you know, just tying it back to the past goals, you know, having the the first mile, last mile, the, the sidewalks to get from place to place, the um, the public transit to to get to your hotel um, or, or whatever your your travel might be, um, and then and the importance of inner city transportation for rural communities came up again, mm -hmm. and um, you know th that what we might think of as inner city might be a train, but for a really small community, it might be um, a car service of, of some kind um, or a volunteer driver. Um, and so thinking about what those plans might look like in all of their diversity and um, um, the different needs that different communities face. That's a great point. And in addition to these five goals, um, there was a, an open response portion as well, right? So were there any interesting just free responses from uh, other folks or organizations who filed? And in addition, any other um, comments from other organizations or, or individuals that we have not highlighted that you feel are worth mentioning? Well, I thought the most fun one and the one to imagine what the possibilities might be is a comment from, I believe it was Hyundai uh, Aerial Mobility or something like that, it's, but highlighting the need to include urban air mobility in <laughs> um, our accessibility framework, which makes me wonder, do we have flying cars on the horizon? Do we need to think about flying car accessibility as well as AV accessibility? <laughs> There's a lot oh, of possibility I so. there. <laughs> I, I still hope so. <laughs> and I'm still curious whether that means we will be riding on the drone or if there will be a cage or compartment uh, under the drone for the passenger. Well, Clark, I think I think they probably are gonna to need to put you in the, the cage. The, the rest of us will ride on like a horse. I'm liking this visual image in of my head of Clark in a little cage hanging from a drone. <laughs> and Claire, you're gonna to have to get Tulane a pair of doggles and maybe a mascot <laughs> as well. Like the sidecar. <laughs> yeah, like Snoopy on the sidecar, yeah. <laughs> So, and as we are wrapping up here, I'd just like to thank the Department of Transportation for hosting and encouraging participation in this national online dialogue. Um, again, this is the Accessibility Strategic Plan Framework. Um, so Claire and Sarah, since this is just the, the framework, what are next steps and where do we go from here? <laughs> Well, I think the department's planning to put out a an actual strategic plan. Um, it will be a draft and they will submit for, or solicit formal comments. So we'll go through, I, I'm assuming, the regular um, regulatory comment process. And um, I'm really looking forward to having that chance to give additional feedback on, on what they come up with. And I believe that's supposed to happen by the end of this year, by late 2020, is that correct, Sarah? 
Uh, that sounds right. And we will certainly let folks know once that uh, accessibility strategic plan is available for public comment. And as always, assist folks with filing comments uh, if assistance is needed. Uh, so again, Claire and Sarah, thank you so much. Any closing thoughts from either of you before we sign off? I think just from me, again, we have covered the whole swath of transportation. It touches upon a lot of things, but if we're missing anything, let us know. You know, transportation means a lot of things. So um, always reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. And you can reach out to AFB as well, or I'll call my friends over at ACB to see what they're hearing. <laughs> That's right. And if anyone has a question specifically for Sarah, uh, please email us at advocacy at acb.org and we are happy to pass that along. All right. And again, thank you both for chatting with me here today and sharing your involvement as well as the broad feedback received uh, as part of the national online dialogue for the accessibility strategic plan framework. Uh, and as we sign out, Claire, what do we always say? Keep advocating. Get up, get up. listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.